0: Welcome to season two of the Price Lab podcast. Most of our conversations this season will be with guests to the Digital Humanities Seminar. These are usually in-person lunchtime discussions, but of course, this is a pretty unusual year. The seminar is being held remotely due to the ongoing pandemic, and we are recording these podcasts remotely as well. We think they sound pretty good, but please excuse any echoes or other glitches while we're temporarily unable to use our usual recording studio. For this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Sylvester Johnson, Assistant Vice Provost for the Humanities at Virginia Tech and Founding Director of the Virginia Tech Center for the Humanities. He's a professor in the Department of Religion and Culture at Virginia Tech and is a scholar of the human condition in the age of artificial intelligence. Now we continue with part two of my interview with Sylvester Johnson. We're obviously coming to the end of a very eventful summer uh, between social uprisings and pandemic. We don't even have a chance to really catch our breath before we head into what promises to be a pretty dramatic election season, kind of regardless of what happens, it's going to be really interesting. Penn always picks a sort of theme for the year, and they kind of at the last minute changed their mind for this year. And so the theme is now the year of civic engagement. So the Price Lab has been trying to think about, you know, what does that mean for digital humanities? And how can DH help our fellows and our scholars sort of rise to the challenge that is 2020? What do you think effective and digitally enabled civic engagement should look like from the humanities? What should it not look like?
1: Yeah, that is such a, a timely question. I think that you're right. We have had so many things coming at us uh, this summer, Uh, the pandemic, uh, the uh, efforts to create social justice reform with policing, uh, the response to that by many different actors at many different levels. Uh, There's quite a bit happening. And in, in some ways, it seems to overwhelmingly emphasize the the urgencies of these issues right now. And in other ways, we can see that even if we had had a different kind of summer, these issues were already there and they (laughs) needed to be addressed. But maybe we've been forced to pay attention at a level that we had not previously. I think that the effective and digitally enabled Civic engagement is such an important undertaking, and I'm I'm really inspired to see this is happening at Penn. So there, obviously, there are there are many ways that that could happen. You know, you you ask, what should it not look like? I would say that it it would be most helpful if we can avoid backing into our, our typical silos and treat this as the humanist versus the technologists. And that's one of the nice things about digital humanities, of course, is that it's being developed at the intersection. Of humanities and computing, and particular attention to you know, to the way digital technologies have become so important for many different things. It, you may just name a sector: uh, healthcare, transportation, agriculture, and and you're getting to see the impact of these technologies on those. Uh, so, it, I think it should not be based on silos. I think it should not be based on the this notion that that humanists must stand up and fight against technology because if we can just get rid of technology, you know, we will have vanquished the great evil. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I don't think that's true. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that we see from this pandemic is the importance of innovation and technology and helping us to stay alive, Mm -hmm. to develop uh, medicinal responses to the virus, the coronavirus and to to recognize as well that the technology always has human dimensions and and it's that human factor that will always determine whether we can be successful or not despite however good our our technical capacities might be that these things have to go hand in hand and so I think one you know, one way you mentioned the election. I think the the fact that the the gravest concerns that we have about data and the most difficult challenges that we have about data are not actually technical; they're humanistic. And and that's not to say. That technical problems aren't difficult. I mean, just whip out your smartphone and imagine trying to create one, <laughs> or, right. or not even create it. Imagine taking it apart and trying to put it back together again. Right. It, it's it's an incredibly mind-boggling accomplishment that we can do what we do with the material technologies, that with the technical aspects of the innovation that have occurred. So it is in this is in no way trivializing that. That's astounding. My point is that we've actually figured out these technical challenges. The fact that, that we have smartphones is a result of our ability to solve technical problems successfully. The humanistic challenges: how do we handle privacy? How do we create we have we have the world's wealthiest economy? How do we create equity? We're seeing the creation of more new wealth than ever before in 2018 apple became the first the world's first trillion dollar company in 2020 so just two years later now it took them their entire history to become a trillion dollar company it took just two more years (laughs) to become a two trillion dollar company right and and the World Economic Forum has been studying these issues for a long time. They released a report, I think back in 2016 or 2017, that was looking forward to the 2020s, that was anticipating the tens of trillions of dollars of new GDP, of new wealth that would get created by 2025. And other export experts, uh, such as Cooper have looked at the, what their, the anticipating is a hundred trillion dollar increase in new wealth by the time we get to 2030 that's coming just from digital technology Stuart. all that well just from digital technology and that includes ai and data storage and that type of thing algorithmic processes know but the point is that that's a that's more wealth than the world's ever seen before and is going to be more unequal Mm -hmm. than anything we've ever witnessed before. And that's saying a lot because we live in very unequal times now, Mm -hmm. but it can become exponentially worse very quickly if we just keep going the way we're going. Mm -hmm. And and so I think uh, one of the ways that we can engage digitally uh, and effectively as in humanities is to really foreground and showcase the fact that our greatest technology challenges are not technical, Mm -hmm. but they're actually human. They're humanistic. They're human centered and they concern things like equity and policy and inclusion. And they will determine whether and how many people are going to become treated as expendable in this future economy. There are a lot of people, Stuart, who are doing very well today, who are very comfortable in their lives, who will get turned upside down mm-hmm. when that happens. It's, it's, and one way of thinking about that is what's called the future of work. Uh, that is the ability, for example, with automation, high-end automation, to replace people who work in finance. Think of financial a- analysts on Wall Street, to replace them with AIs. Now, those people make a lot of money and they spent their careers being very comfortable, uh, mm-hmm. not, not worrying about where their next meal is coming from. And that can change overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's already begun to change. There are big investment banks that have already begun replacing the services of human analysts with algorithmic machines that can do far more with, with fewer errors, greater accuracy, and it's gonna happen in healthcare. Uh, if you don't believe me, just, just look at your, your uh, health app, if you have an iPhone and look at all the features in that health app, Apple hasn't even started advertising the capacity because they're still building out the infrastructure. But the mm-hmm. point is that the tech companies are going to have the capacity to collect data, to make it possible to go to any doctor you want. And, and you won't have to recite from them all of your information. They'll already have access to your information and an AI system will already process it so that by the time you get there, it, they will already have a much more sophisticated understanding of how they can support your health outcomes. But the challenge is that a lot of humans can be displaced from labor in that new digital economy. And so I think when we engage, we have to show that our greatest challenge is actually the humanistic side of the technology in a way that is not in competition or not against the technical side. I mean, the point is that we need a comprehensive approach and that has to include that has to have a lot of space
2: mm-hmm. for
1: leadership from humanists. And I'll give one more example that you you also refer to the election. Uh, so Facebook has over the years they have been responsible for ensuring that elections throughout the world occur in the most democratic democratic fashion with uh, as little interference as possible. And when I say they become responsible for that, I mean they have a dedicated team of people who are constantly monitoring the things that happen on social media in order to try to ensure that uh, that there's as little interference as possible in these elections. Now, anyone who's been paying attention should know that that Facebook has a, at best, a mixed record of success with <laughs> with that goal. Uh, my point is that no one ever there's no nation state in this world that ever appointed Facebook to that role. Mm -hmm. No, no one ever said, you know what, we voted and we agree Facebook's going to be in charge of ensuring that this, this is taken care of. (laughs) It's just the nature of the digital, uh, the the political economy of the digital platforms Mm -hmm. and the cloud computing. And that's where we are. So what we're dealing with now is trying to understand the relationship between technology and democracy. And I love to point out, so I'll I'll start with what I, I'll go back to what I started with, that it's very popular for people to point fingers at tech companies and Mm -hmm. to say, we need to hold these people accountable. We absolutely do. I completely agree. There has to be accountability, but I think that's just the beginning. Let's keep, let's look at those other fingers and point them around our whole society. Mm -hmm. And let's recognize that we had had mark zuckerberg stayed in college and actually finished his college education we have to recognize that he probably would not have been allowed to study democracy because it wouldn't have been on the computer science curriculum because you know that's a humanities thing Mm -hmm. and that's it doesn't sound like it has anything to do with technology but if you look at all the debates and arguments that we're having about (laughs) technology it comes down to those kinds of things right? right so so I think that our engagement has to be far reaching. I think that digital humanities has to be bold enough to say this, this certainly includes things that, such as I was doing at Virginia Tech, we were digitizing uh, an early modern text. And so creating a digitized version of something that people can search and learn, you know, that's part of digital humanities. But, but digital humanities, I think also is going to benefit from a very broad interpretation of what it means to work at the intersection of humanities and computing. Mm-hmm. And and that intersection includes things like the future of democracy. It includes things like the, the question of who will be left out of that hundred trillion dollars of new wealth that's gonna get created in the next nine years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Who's gonna be able to actually have access to healthcare as as AI becomes more central to how we experience these things. And, and who will actually get to decide uh, what our militaries and our military and our militarized police have access to? Amazon just shut off the access to the facial recognition technology that they call recognition
2: mm-hmm. that
1: they were providing to police departments. They just shut it off over the summer. Mm -hmm. because uh they they became convinced that they were being complicit in an unjust system of racially targeting people Mm -hmm. with with often deadly consequences and ibm and microsoft did the same thing Mm -hmm. Uh, but that wasn't that wasn't congress (laughs) There, there was no democratically elected policy group that said okay uh we have the accountability framework and and we've exceeded the boundaries of it you know it was it was a corporate decision
0: mentioned very early on that you were, did you say a chemistry major? That's correct. And, and you made the switch to a humanities career. I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you made that transition.
1: Absolutely. I would love to say that at the uh, wise age Of seventeen, I forecast my future and meticulously planned everything (laughs) in in, uh, synchronicity and harmony with the planned outcomes. But actually, I I went to college planning to study medicine, and so became a chemistry major. And I enjoyed my science courses, uh, the the math, the science. I, I remember fondly my organic chemistry teacher in my first year. You know, he would talk about these functional groups like they were people. I mean, it just made so much sense. He was, he was such a fascinating teacher of science. And, and I still enjoy science,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I, I quickly learned after about a year and a half and taking some, some courses in humanities that I was very fascinated with some of these historical and political questions uh, that were rooted in the intersection of religion and other things. And so I did a minor in religion philosophy and I, I finished my chemistry degree and even taught briefly, uh, taught science in one of the high schools in Florida where I was studying right. and then went on to grad school and and studied religion. And over the years, what I have realized is that background of being educated across those so-called boundaries of humanities and stem has actually benefited me in tremendous ways uh just you know there's there's the what people say is a knowledge for knowledge sake of being able to understand scientific paradigms and and just just know it uh there's also the practical aspect of understanding these connections the book that i'm writing now which is a, a study of, of technology and particularly artificial intelligence and human enhancement, so combining people with machines, mm-hmm. and which requires some, I will say require, it, it is certainly further enabled by a disciplined understanding of things like cellular processes mm-hmm. and genetics and microbiology, which I was able to study as an undergraduate and, and continue to learn more about through at least casual reading further on. Mm-hmm that has been very helpful for me to appreciate uh, things like, you know, I'll take someone who is a, a common representative of humanities, Aristotle, and we can critique him for all kinds of really good reasons. It's awful, mm-hmm. would never want to live un- under his political economy of justified slavery and his misogyny and those types of things. Uh, but as in, in looking at disciplines, Disciplinarity, it's fascinating that this ancient author who is widely celebrated as a humanities figure (laughs) in our courses. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: He if if he were alive today and had to work at our university, you know, he would he would have a hard time figuring out which department he should work in. (laughs) Because you know, we have everything chopped up and divided. Mm -hmm. And and you know he couldn't even decide which college he he studied what we call natural sciences, but he also studied what we call political theory,
2: mm-hmm. and he also
1: studied what we call philosophy. And one of his most influential works, uh, De Anima, in, in Latin, is uh, concerning the soul, mm-hmm. was trying to answer this question: What makes things alive? And and that's actually one of the big questions that I'm working with in this book. How do you know something's alive? And I'll just give you this one quick example of why the what sounds at first like an ontological problem—the uh, nature of things in their existence—is is, I think, going to going to grab us and force us in an urgent way to wrestle with it uh, as an especially political problem. Uh, who has what rights. And so the cutting edge of research in AI and human enhancement is happening through military research. That's because military industrial states around the world uh, want to be number one when it comes to creating weaponized AI Mm -hmm. and genetically or cybernetically modifying human soldiers to give them the capacities that normal humans do not have. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is combining them with machine parts uh, particularly neural implants, for example, brain implants, right. or if they have uh, the loss of a limb with a smart prosthetic limb
2: mm-hmm.
1: or changing their DNA so that they can do certain things. Now, if that you may be thinking, well, hold on a second. That sounds very scary and problematic and, and probably... Uh, impermissible by the current guidelines for uh, things like human genomics but i say i'll go back to the point that i made about weapons autonomous weapons that currently have the capacity on their own without a human in the loop to go out and kill people Mm -hmm. technically we're not supposed to do those things but we already have the capacity right Right. well let's say at some point uh, a human soldier Get who's, who's special ops, special operations gets this brain implant, which is not illegal. People already have brain implants
2: mm-hmm.
1: for military purposes and otherwise for research. Uh, has an implant because this allows him to communicate wirelessly. I'm going to get creative here, but this is loosely based on some things that uh, military research is actively exploring to communicate wirelessly with drones mm-hmm. so that the person can just see what the drone is seeing and even maybe command these drones or with, with another human and maybe even see in the dark, because mm-hmm. if the drone can see, you can just relay the signaling from the drone to the human. And they they do this and they can do different things. And then they retire from the military service, they go back into civilian life and they want to vote. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's it's pretty obvious. There are a lot of people who, who believe that machines cannot think, that mm-hmm. only people can think. And Aristotle was one who did <laughs> Who said that only humans can know every living thing has a soul, plants have soul, non human animals have soul, but mm-hmm. have souls, but only humans have a knowing soul. And so what at first sounds like an ontological dilemma, can a machine think, could quickly become a political one. Should a person a human who's part machine enjoy the same rights and privileges as people who let's call them organic humans. I'm just going to make that up because we haven't come up with a category yet uh, for unenhanced people. And should this person, someone might say that we don't trust the company that made the brain chip. Uh, how do we know they're not just planting the vote inside that person's brain? Mm-hmm. And and so we shouldn't trust them or they shouldn't be able to have a family and get married because you know we know machines can't love. Well, how do you know machines can't love? And, and, and this is when you start to try to understand where is that line of difference and then begin to think about the history of the politics of that difference. And so what starts off as an ontological question becomes um, uh, very quickly I think it's going to hit us as a political one. Right. And in my background in, in science and in humanities, for me, has been deeply enabling in trying to understand why we need to pay attention to different kinds of data. And information mm-hmm. in order to answer these kind of questions because these questions are coming they are
2: right
1: and and they will get answered <laughs> I promise you uh, now we will have debates about who's gonna get to answer them and who will be included and who will be excluded from participating in those answers but they are coming and they will get answered and so there is a type of urgency about this mm-hmm. and and the answer to those questions are not contained in any engineering formula. And and I love engineering. This is, I I, I admire engineers. That's not against engineers. Again, we need everybody. This is not trying to exclude people. It's the opposite trying to include people. My point is that that question is a humanistic question. When I look back over my own educational experience and then my uh, my opportunities to collaborate with the range of people at Virginia Tech across the university i i think it has benefited me to be able to appreciate that we we have to bring together these different areas of knowledge
0: and disciplinary i'm really glad i asked that question and i also think i'll be reading the cyborg manifesto this evening <laughs> and I'm I haven't read that in a few years, but uh,
1: <laughs> that's a great classic text to come back to.
0: Well, I'll just do that, you know, while I'm waiting for your book to come out. I <laughs> know. Um, uh, well, we're definitely out of time now, but thank you so much for taking so much time.
1: No, but well, thanks so much for the invitation, Stuart. I really appreciate it, and uh, and thanks for the thoughtful questions. It's been so great talking with you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Price Lab for Digital Humanities at the University of Pennsylvania. We thank Michael and Vicki Price and the Mellon Foundation for their generous support.